Well, uh, when it comes to Christmas time, we are certainly no strangers to the need for preparation. And the need for preparation exists on all kinds of different fronts. Uh, in family life, there's a thought given to presents and making sure that we remember all the people we need to buy gifts for, and not just for our immediate family members, but for others as well. Uh, we need to think through extended family, maybe. Who's buying presents for whom? And if they're buying presents for us, then do we need to make sure we have presents for them? Uh, so presents need to be prepared during this season. And uh, schedules require preparation as well. Uh, where are we going to go on Christmas Day, or who's coming into town, or are we going out of town? And if they're coming here, what do we need to plan for in terms of, of food and and, uh, and all of those kinds of things. So schedules require preparation, uh, just as do uh, the work time off requests. Uh, we want to make sure that there's some time set aside for enjoying the season after all, so we can't forget to schedule some time out of the office or at least communicate to somebody that won't, we won't be in as normally scheduled. Uh, we need to, to make sure those requests get in soon enough so that we don't end up being the ones who are working when everybody else is, is uh, out having, having uh, fun over the Christmas holiday. Uh, but that can be a bit tricky in the work environment because, after all, it is the end of the year, and that requires preparation. We need to make sure we're meeting our numbers. We need to make sure all the reports are in. There's the expenses to file and all of those kinds of things. And so there we are having to prepare. When it comes to the Christmas season and as the end of the year approaches, we're certainly no strangers to the fact that significant preparation is needed. And one of the unique challenges of all these different and very legitimate arenas of preparation around Christmas time, a challenge that all of these uh, bring about, is that in the midst of attention that each of these areas does require, the reality of Jesus and His coming can so easily take a back seat. Uh, we, we can prepare for all kinds of different uh, Christmas aspects, different ways, necessary ways, no doubt, but we can be so taken with those pressing external preparations that we can fail to take the time to prepare our hearts. Uh, so in all the going out and adding up and looking around and, and, and all of those kinds of things, we can fail to come back to the central reality of who Jesus is, what it means that He came, and what it looks like to turn toward Him. And this is where the gospel writer Luke and his account of John the Baptist's ministry comes to help us at Christmas time. Because in this part of Luke chapter 3, we're given an account of John's preparation ministry. Again, as we said, as he prepares people for the onset of Jesus' public ministry. But as John prepares the people for the onset of Jesus' public ministry historically, still, as we consider this text here in our own contemporary setting, we see how the Scripture continues to speak to us and prepare us for turning and even returning to Christ in our own time and context. And so what we'll do is we'll take these verses today, these uh, verses 1 to 14, uh, in, a, in a passage that calls for preparation, and we'll see how they particularly frame that preparation in the context of repentance, a call to return to the good way of God, trusting in the salvation that God alone provides. And as we look at this passage, we can be helped uh, not only in our, in our anticipation of Jesus and what it means to be returned toward looking at Him, but we can be helped by checking our own hearts and asking questions about obstacles that may uh, be present in our own life, that that can cause us to not see Christ for who He is or distract us from the significance of what Christ alone offers. And so, uh, we're going to take this text as we so typically do. We're going to take it in three parts. Uh, we're going to think about the context of preparation first of all, and then we're going to think about the necessity of preparation, and then we'll finally wrap up with an uh, explanation of how to prepare there at the end. So that's how we'll walk through these verses today. 
And uh, we'll start then with the first six verses. It'll help to follow along. I'm not going to reread it all, uh, but again, if you can have your eye on the text, it'll help. There's so much in a passage like this that we could spend time unpacking. We're going to try to stick to the main line here, but, um, uh, but it'll help to follow along. So, verses 1 to 6, here we have the context of preparation. The context of, of preparation. As you let your eye run down these lines, if you're looking at the verses, it's interesting to note that in these verses we have Luke giving what is recognized by scholars as the most uh, detailed time stamp, historical time stamp in the whole Bible. So we have this long account of all of these figures in places of recognizable prominence listed out here in great detail. So, so the time and place of these events of John the Baptist's ministry, the onset of Jesus' public ministry, that the time and place of these events is firmly fixed in the context of history by what Luke gives us here. Uh, which is no surprise on the one hand because Luke has said back at the very beginning of his gospel that he's working to give us an accurate account of things that took place regarding Christ. He's writing for this individual named Theophilus who he wants to make sure has an accurate understanding of all that went on in the coming of Christ and the ministry of Christ, the death and resurrection of Christ, and then ultimately in, in the book of Acts and the spread of the message of Christ to the world. So Luke is writing to provide this detailed account. And Luke, as we know from other scriptures, was a medical doctor, uh, so it's no surprise that he has the capacity for detail uh, that he demonstrates in a text like this. And so on the one hand, all this detail about who's in positions of power where that we find in these verses, all this could lead us uh, just to presume that Luke wanted to make sure the time stamp of John the Baptist's preparation ministry is recorded really plainly for us. And, and there's certainly something to that. But in studying Luke, we see that, that he's not only one who has an eye for historical detail, but he also has very much a flair for literary style. And in knowing that, we can start to see that, that more is going on here than just the provision of a historical record. And, and we know this partly because if, if all Luke wanted to do was timestamp these events for us, he could have quit with, with line one, the verse one, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. That's enough to timestamp things historically. Everybody in the known world is aware of who Tiberius Caesar was. He's the second emperor of the Roman Empire. Um, it, it's, it's a perfect timestamp for anybody who's trying to, to place what's going on here in the context of, of known history around the world. All Luke needed to do was tell us about, about Caesar and, and, and the fact that he was in his 15th year. But then Luke goes on to give us all these additional details here. He goes on to tell us about the governor of the area and the tetrarchs and the high priests, all of these in John's area as he, as he lists out there. So, so we read this and we think to ourselves, Luke, Luke definitely does want to give a historical time frame here. In fact, we'll see the same thing with regard to Jesus' birth on Christmas Eve. We'll think about Luke chapter 2 and how we have a, the same time stamp there at the beginning of the, the time Jesus was born. Luke wants to do that. But he's not just doing that as he gives us these details. Because the more we work this out, we can start to see that something else percolates to the surface as well. In fact, in fact, scholars point out that things become more clear as we notice the way Luke records the individuals listed out here. So, so beginning in verse 1, Luke moves from the highest position of power within the Roman world, which we would also say within the known world at the time. He moves from this person in the highest position of power, the emperor Caesar, uh, down through the regional and then local ranks of power as those, as those ranks relate to the land of Palestine where Jesus is about to begin his public ministry. So, so first of all, we have Caesar, obviously, during, during this time. Nobody's higher than Caesar. 
And then from there, we have the governor of Judea. We have Pontius Pilate. He's second down on the list if we're thinking regionally. And then from there, we've got these local rulers like uh, the, the Tetrarchs, like Philip and those other ones who are hard to pronounce that, that Ben did a great job reading this morning. I actually didn't put them in because I didn't want to try to pronounce them. So good job with that. But we have all these other tetrarchs, these kind of lieutenant governors then of dif- different regions uh, reflected there. And then we, have, then we have the high priest listed, Annas and Caiaphas, who represented local religious leadership in the area. So, so Luke is giving us this time stamp, but with that, he's giving us a context of hierarchy during this time in history. From the Roman Caesar all the way down to the local religious Jewish authorities, who from a Roman perspective were certainly the least important. So we have from top to bottom here in terms of, of people in positions of power. And then after getting all the way through all of those positions, then at the very end in verse 2, Luke introduces us to John. So God's word came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. So, so you start to see what Luke is doing here as he's putting this together. God's word didn't come to Caesar in the palace of Rome. God's word came to the son of a rural priest. Zechariah is just a rural priest. God's word comes to the son of a rural priest named John. And John was hardly in any emperor's palace. He was far away from the comforts of society out in the wilderness. And God's word came to John, fulfilling what the Lord had long ago promised through the prophet Isaiah. There will be a voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And then while we could go into much more detail ourselves, given all the detail that Luke does give us here, as we think about this passage from the perspective of Advent preparation, there is something significant to note in that here in the midst of a very big and very important world with big important people like Caesar and and Pontius Pilate, Tiberius Caesar even had a temple in the eastern province of Rome dedicated to him so he could could be worshipped out there. So, So in the midst of a big important world with big important people, God's word breaks through fulfilling his own prophetic promises in the, in the ministry of this guy at the very, 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 very bottom of the list. Son of a rural priest named John, who, who's, who's about as far down the ladder as you can go in terms of any kind of cultural or social prominence. In fact, he's all the way out in the wilderness. It's, it's really a picture here of this humble, which is a theme in the book of Luke, the humility that marks out followers of Christ. It's the humble inbreaking of the Word of God in the midst of a really big and a really important world. And it's that Word that's going to prepare us for Jesus. And, and just in that, we have such a reminder this Christmas season that, that there are big and important people in the world, from, from politicians to, to, to influencers with a little blue check mark next to their name on, their, on Twitter or whatever it might be, that there are so many big and important people with loud and, and even penetrating personas and voices and messages that everybody seems to be so interested in. And this Christmas we can be reminded that the Word of God doesn't break through in those big, important, and flashy ways that we might otherwise expect. It breaks through in humble ways. It breaks through in ways that may not seem in keeping with the culture of the day. After all, who wants to go out into the wilderness to hear God's word. That's so out of touch. But the word of God comes in low ways, preparing us to yield to the Savior who's coming. And, And a passage like this reminds us to be prepared to listen as the word comes in those ways. Not to the loudest cultural voices, not to the, to the fanciest voices by human standards. That's not where we're tuning our ear. Not to the most important voices as judged by those around us. But a passage like this reminds us to be prepared to listen to the voice of the Lord, which comes to us through the Scriptures and calls us to a posture of readiness because His Son has come. So, so in this season of Advent preparation, it seems like Luke would appreciate us checking our hearts by, by this question. We can ask ourselves, whose voice is the most important in my life in this season? 
Is it the voices of the, of the big, incredible, and admirable world around us? Or is it God's voice who speaks through His Scriptures according to His promises and calls us back? Whose voice is the most important to us this Christmas season? Is it the voice of the, of the world around with all its answers and assurances of happiness? Or is it God's voice who speaks to us from the Scriptures and says, Turn to Jesus, trust in the Son. There's only life in Him. The context of preparation um, as we think about preparing ourselves as John exercises this ministry of preparation uh, before the public ministry of Jesus Christ begins, the context of this is one of recognizing the voice of God which breaks in in humble ways into the big, important, feeling world and calls us back. Here's the one. Here's the one. So, th so that's first. We can think about that. The context of preparation. And then secondly, we have the necessity of preparation. Uh, preparation is something that is needed. And we see this aspect of, of need come through in the passage. If we overlap a bit, and now think, ver think through verses 3 to 9 in the passage. Uh, so you can keep an eye on those. Uh, we're told in these verses that John came as a fulfillment of what God promised through Isaiah, the prophet. Um, this quote in verses 4 to 6 is primarily a quote from Isaiah chapter 40. Uh, and we're told by God through Isaiah that there's this one who's going to come crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. So there's this preparation element that's going to uh, necessarily precede the coming of the Lord's salvation, which is referenced there in verse 6. It's a preparation connected to the salvation that God is going to send. So Isaiah speaks of this prophet who's going to come, who's going to prepare the people to receive Jesus' ministry. John the Baptist, as Luke is telling us here, John the Baptist is that guy. John the Baptist is the one who's coming. He's going to be the preparer. So then the question, why the preparation? Well, why does the Lord send John the Baptist, who's preaching out in the wilderness in the vicinity of the Jordan of all places? Why is John sent by God to prepare the way? Why couldn't Jesus have just begun his public ministry? That, that would seem easy enough just for Jesus to begin preaching and healing, and off we go with, with the whole thing. Why send John to get things ready? Well, that's a question that is answered as we, as we think through the text a bit here. Uh, during the time of Isaiah's writing, if we can go back to Isaiah's prophecy for a moment, when a ruler would tour the area of his dominion, there would regularly be a herald that would go out ahead of the king or whoever it was because the people of the kingdom needed to be ready for the visit. It's a fairly straightforward picture that Isaiah employs there. So this herald's going to go out and going to call the people uh, to get ready because the king is coming. And usually part of what that meant is you've got to make sure the roads are fixed up in your town because after all, the king and his royal entourage is going to be coming through and you wouldn't want, you wouldn't want your road to be rutted and all messed up or anything like that because the king's coming through. So when, when the herald uh, came into town telling you, prepare the way because the king is coming, you got out there and you made sure uh, things were all handled for his seamless, uh, seamless traveling through your town. And that's the imagery that, that Isaiah's prophecy reflected. Uh, except that what Isaiah's picture pointed forward to in John's ministry is this way bigger, way more significant uh, tour than, than, than a mere tour of a local governor or earthly king coming over this rutted road. This is something so much bigger in Isaiah. So, so John's preparing the way, Isaiah tells us, for the Lord himself to come. Prepare the way of the Lord, verse 4, which when you think about it is quite a connection there between the Lord coming and Jesus coming. So, so Jesus 
is the baby born of Mary. He's fully man, but he's also fully God. Come down to humanity. The Lord is coming. If you want an interesting exercise in the, in the Scripture's way of referencing the divinity of Jesus, go through and highlight in the first couple chapters of Luke who the word Lord refers to. Sometimes it's God the Father, sometimes it's Jesus himself. There's no getting around the fact that Jesus is fully God and fully man as Luke is presenting him in this gospel. So the Lord is coming. Jesus is coming. And before the Lord comes, the way needs to be prepared. Things need, we need to get ready for Him. And, and instead of a few rutted roads that need to be fixed up, according to Isaiah, the valleys will be filled and mountains will be made low and crooked roads are going to be straightened and so on. Which is an extraordinary and, and inhuman level of preparation, isn't it? Obstacles as big as high mountains and low valleys are going to be flattened and filled. Crooked roads are going to be straightened for the coming of the Lord. This is the coming of the true king. And so here's John, and he's the herald that Isaiah's prophecy spoke about. He's the preparer. John's the one who's going to come with this valley-filling and mountain-flattening message. He's the one who's going to cry out for the removal of obstacles as the Lord comes. And so what are those obstacles? Well, they're not really valleys and mountains. Those are just metaphors to represent the significance of the work that needs to be done. Uh, they're not really valleys and mountains. Instead, we're told in verse 3 exactly what John does say. His mountain-flattening preparation message is there in verse 3. He went into all the vicinity of the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So, so the mountains that needed to be leveled and the valleys that needed to be filled in order that the people are prepared to receive the ministry of Jesus are the valleys and mountains of their sin that they need to turn from and be forgiven of. In fact, it's interesting that, that even the language Luke uses to describe John's uh, location of ministry, th th this, this, this forgiveness of sin kind of ministry, we, we see even in the geography that Luke describes, the need for forgiveness is highlighted. And we get that, first of all, just because it's the wilderness. So we think wilderness, we immediately think back to Israel's wandering in the wilderness under the judgment of God because they wouldn't trust in Him. So wilderness already has the connotation of, of a kind of lostness and sin. Um, but uh, as, as, as Luke tells us about things, he also tells us here that John is preaching this message of, of baptism for repentance in all the vicinity of the Jordan. In all the vicinity of the Jordan. That phrase, word for word, appears two times in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which would have been Luke's Bible. It appears two times referencing the region where Lot moved when he left Abraham. It's a geographical reference to the land that was, that had been, the city of Gomorrah. Okay? Lot moved when he left Abraham. You remember out there. And then we remember the significance of the sin and judgment that befell Sodom and Gomorrah. That's where John's preaching. The people are going out to hear him there, which along with this desert reference where Israel sinned and wandered for 40 years and all of that, that region geographically symbolized extraordinary farness from God, sin against God, detestable stuff before the Lord. John's preaching in, in, in Gomorrah's ghost town, if you like. And that geographical detail is given by Luke to help us understand the necessity of turning from sin that's represented here. The people who are coming out to John are coming out with hearts that reflect the geographical location that John is in. They're people who are coming out with hearts twisted up by sin, which is reflected in the, in the very specific message that, that John is preaching. 
uh, which, which we see show up there a little bit in verses 7 to 9. We know he's preaching this, this baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So he's saying, come and be cleansed. Uh, demonstrate the fact you know you need to be made clean by God and turn from your sin, find forgiveness with Him. All that Psalm 130 kind of stuff like we talked about last week with forgiveness. He's calling people to demonstrate their need for that. And, he's, and then in the context of his message, we see that he's confronting them very directly on the fact that this sin is existing in their life. So, if you look at verses 7 to 9, these people who come out to him, he, he, uh, he calls them a brood of vipers, which Jesus does a couple times too, just in case we get bent out of shape with John. Jesus actually does this a couple times when he's addressing uh, religious leaders in different contexts. So, John calls them a brood of vipers. Uh, very literally, he's actually addressing them as, you offspring of vipers. You offspring of vipers. And, and he's doing that because there's this connection that's made between their sinful practices and the uh, perceived sense of okayness that they have being related to Abraham as Jewish people. So, so no doubt John is referencing the fact that these people are more connected with the deceiving serpent from the garden, offspring of serpents, than with, with God's offspring promise to Abraham, where through Abraham all the world will be blessed and those kinds of things. So in this, John is directly addressing, albeit abruptly, he is directly addressing the people's sin, sinful condition and that they think a family connection to Abraham is enough. If they're, his, if they're his offspring, after all, they're going to be okay. But John's saying you won't be saved just because you're related to Abraham by nationality. John says that persisting in sin is, is more of an offspring of the serpent kind of, kind of lifestyle than an offspring of the promise kind of lifestyle, you see. So verse 8, God, God can keep His promise to raise up children for Abraham from rocks. He doesn't need these people to do it. So what, what these people need to do is bear fruit in keeping with repentance, John says. Then these people are coming out. They're caught up in sin. They're resting in a false sense of well-being because of their religious connection. And yet, they're the ones in great danger of God's judgment. They're tangled in their sin. The axe is already laid to the, to the root of the tree, John says. God's judgment is close. It's coming. And it's not enough to be trusting in, in that kind of external connection in order to be okay before God. You need to repent, John says. You need to come and demonstrate your felt awareness of the fact you must be made clean before God. That's what the, the waters of baptism would have demonstrated in, in John's ministry. That's not the baptism we have with, with uh, the new covenant. This is different. Remember, Paul runs across some people who'd only heard of John's baptism uh, in, in the book of Acts as he's ministering. It's a different kind of baptism than our new covenant baptism. But John's using it symbolically, saying, come, be made clean. You need to demonstrate this reality. And then you need to live a life that accords to that new, uh, that new sort of life, that returning to the Lord that you're professing you need so badly. This is the message that he's preaching. And so in this, we have a clear view of the necessity of John's preparation ministry as we think about it. Because Jesus is just historical moments from beginning His public ministry in the region. But for people to be ready to yield to Jesus, they must get past the high mountains and low valleys of sin's presence in their own hearts. In particular, they need to get past, in this case, their reliance on religious pedigree, which just can't save them. Because if they're trusting in that, what is the trouble? If they're trusting in that, they'll never have ears to hear Jesus' message. Because the way is clogged, isn't it? The, the road is made crooked between them and true salvation in Christ. There are these mountains and valleys there 
uh, that, that, are, that, are, that, are, that are blocking an understanding of who Jesus is based on the fact they have this unfounded sense of being okay. And so that's what John is addressing. This is how he's preparing people to understand that this Christ is the one you're going to need to trust in. He's the one who's going to be the fulfillment of God's promises. He's the one who ultimately does the work that brings you into a place of reconciled peace with God. And as long as you're clogged up doing these things that are contrary to God, and as long as you're clogged up by thinking, I'm okay because of this and this and this over here, you're never going to have a soft heart. You're never going to have the yielding heart necessary to see that Jesus is the one I need. Humanly speaking, of course, God breaks into our stony hearts and changes us. But humanly speaking, this sin can come in and tangle us up in such a way that we actually find ourselves thinking we're just fine far away from Jesus. And so the message of Jesus can come. We think about that even this Christmas. We think about that when, when we hear people sing songs like Joy to the World around us. There's this, there's this misunderstanding that everything is fine because they don't have ears to hear what Jesus is really saying. And so John comes to prepare the way. He's saying these mountains need to be put, put down, these valleys need to be filled up, the crooked road needs to be straight. You need to understand that you can't be okay with this kind of self-reliance policy you've been living with. You need to repent, from, repent of that, live a life that corresponds with God's good way, and in so doing, work out a heart that's prepared to yield to the message of true salvation when it comes. And so, and so he brings this to them. You need to be prepared for this. This is very necessary because their hearts are, 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 are clogged highways, as it were. They're blocked highways to Christ uh, given the sin that's going on. And so he tells them, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. It's one thing to say, I'm going to turn back to the Lord. Uh, look at me go. I'm going to live this holy and righteous life. Now I'm, I've got it sorted. I've said I'm sorry for those things I shouldn't have done. Okay, I'll quit trusting in whatever the religious externals may have been that I was trusting in. You know, I grew up in the church or whatever it might be. I've quit doing that. Now I'm going to go on and, and I'm, I'm good now. I got it all sorted. Thanks for that quick little turnaround. Here we go. No, John's saying bear fruit in keeping with repentance. There's a world of difference between general regret and godly repentance, isn't there? Paul has some things to say about that in 2 Corinthians. We can have regret over things going badly and then, and then just uh, be, be uh, lost there in our sorrow for the moment, but true repentance is going to manifest itself in a lifestyle change, in a directional change in our life. Repentance itself means to turn from going one way and go back the other direction. And so John is preaching this message to them. It's one thing for them to, be, uh, to acknowledge the necessity of, 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 of uh, repentance around their sin. It's another thing for them to actually live that out in a way that proves the, le the legitimacy of their repentance. They need to evidence this reality in their life. They can talk about it all day long, John says, but that means nothing. The wrath of God is coming. You can talk all you want. That's nothing if you're not truly repentant in your heart. So what is their question? We see the necessity of this preparation. What happens next? They need an explanation, don't they? What's their question? Well, so what do we do then, John? Okay, you've made it, you've made it clear. I, I, I understand that, that I have been out of sorts in my self-reliance and all of these kinds of things. And so, so what in the world am I going to do now? And so then in verses 10 to 14, we have the explanation of preparation. So, so it's not just that, that preparation is necessary in terms of considering Christ, but we need to understand that this repentance business looks a certain way. And this is the big question in verse 10. What should we do? And so John explains things. Here's what it looks like to live a life of repentance. He says, verse 11, let's just talk about some practical matters. Loving one another. Somebody has, one, uh, somebody has two shirts they need to share with somebody who has none. The one who has food must do the same. 
So if you're really turning back toward God, if you've really stopped exercising a life of self-reliance and self-promotion and self-consideration, well, then that's going to manifest itself in a humble heart uh, that is full of sacrificial concern toward others, isn't it? After all, this is the kind of, 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 of love that God Himself has extended to us in the sending of His Son to die on the cross for our sins. How could we ever be repentant people without demonstrations of practical love toward those around us? This is just a basic repentant category. We're loving those who are in need. The fruit of a repentant heart is practical love. And along with that, the fruit of repentance is another, I don't know how else to say it, except pointedly personal. In, in the next couple of verses, in verses 12 and 13, it's very personal. Verse 12 and 13, if you look at those, John says uh, to tax collectors, he addresses these tax collectors that came out, and he says you're not to collect more than what you've been authorized to collect. So repentance for tax collectors reflected honest dealings in their life as tax collectors. Um, the, the tax collecting structure, and maybe you've read about it or know about it, is very interesting in the Roman era. You could put in a bid to be a higher level, these are, you know, a higher level tax collector, a tax collector manager. You could put in a bid to the Roman emperor and say, I'm going to collect this much money uh, for Rome. And, and Rome would say, uh, okay, wonderful, you get the contract if you come in with the highest bid. And then what you go out and do is you do collect all that money, but then you collect a whole bunch more on top of that. Rome knew that without actually that kind of corrupt framework, a tax collector could make no money anyway, so they allowed it. They say, I'm, you say, I'm going to give you all this money, you get the contract, okay, now I'm going to go out and I'm going to collect over and above that, and I'm going to become very wealthy as a result. Uh, and so, and so they'd, uh, they, they'd gather more than they should. And of course, to do that, they needed backup. Because apparently tax collectors were not the most, uh, t the, the, the toughest guys necessarily. Soldiers would need to back them up. Um, and so John addresses the soldiers next year because right there hanging out with the tax collector or their soldier buddies. And, and he says to them, don't take, don't take money from anyone by force or false accusation and be satisfied with your wages. The, the, the soldier group and the tax collector group had a corner on this extortion market. And so John hits it right on. He says, repentance toward God is expressed in an immensely personal and practical way for you guys. In terms of being a tax collector, in terms of being a soldier, be honest and fair dealing and knock off the covetousness. So check the love of money at the door, he's saying to them, and be kind to people. Don't extort them. And, and while these groups and their practices might seem so big and obvious in their evil dealings, you know, we can read this and think, well, I haven't, I haven't been involved in any kind of extortion, so I'm, I'm obviously fine. But instead of thinking that way, we do see there's a very practical lesson for us in this. We understand that the tax collectors were the very bottom rung of Jewish society. Uh, if, if you were a tax-collecting Jew, you worked for the Roman government, so you were already a traitor to the Jewish people to begin with. Uh, the Jewish people hated the Roman government, obviously, for ruling over them. And then to top it off as a tax collector, you stole from your fellow countrymen under the authority of the Roman government. So that's not helping uh, matters at all. In fact, tax collectors were put out of synagogues, not allowed to worship. If your brother, for example, was a tax collector, collector and he happened to swing by the house on a Thursday afternoon, if he even touched your house, you were unclean for worship and you couldn't go worship on that Sabbath. In fact, an observant Jew that was, even was even told that they could lie to tax collectors without breaking God's law. So, so these guys are like as low as you could get. And soldiers, especially Jewish soldiers, who, who worked for the local tetrarchs and supported the tax collector endeavors, they weren't regarded as much better. People were afraid of them uh, because they could use force, but they weren't regarded much better than the tax collectors. 
And in fact, soldiers in this context were actually expected to have some documentation of their use of force if they were ever going to get a promotion or a pay raise in terms of their, in terms of their, their work, which, which is why John says specifically, be satisfied with your wages. Don't let that prerogative for, for a documented violent uh, profession be enough to, to motivate you to, to live in that way. So, so gentleness and honesty were, uh, were high on the list of repentant soldier qualities. All that to say, here's what's amazing. John the Baptist doesn't say a repentant life means you leave your life. Do you notice that? It's really something to, to look at here. He does not say that living a life prepared to yield to King Jesus means you stop tax collecting and stop soldiering. He doesn't call these individuals to renounce their work under the Roman government, and he doesn't call them to retreat from society, come live in the wilderness with, with him. He doesn't call these soldiers to a life of pacifism or anything like that. Instead, the fruit of repentance is very simple, he says. In your sphere of responsibility, demonstrate your repentance by expressing a God-honoring morality. So put down what is contrary to righteousness and pursue what accords with honesty and purity and right dealings and all these kinds of things. That's the repentant life. Soldiers still soldier. They just do so honestly and gently. Right? Tax collectors, this is amazing. Tax collectors still tax collect. They're just going to do so honestly, which you'll note is going to be an exceptional sacrifice for them since the only way they ever made enough money to make the world go around is through extortion. So this is a big price that they're going to pay. But he doesn't say quit being tax collectors. He just says you need to do so with honesty. Preparation for a soft-hearted reception of Jesus is not, we see this here, isn't a retreat from the world and our occupations and all of those kinds of things. It's not a reject all that's been part of our world. Repentance is not a, a running away from in any sense in, the, in those ways. Instead, repentance is a living righteously within the context of our situation. So, so it says we live righteously in our spheres of influence and, and friendship and work and family and school and all those kinds of things. It says we live in a way that reflects God's good design for us in these places that we actually posture our heart in a way that not only demonstrates repentance but is prepared to yield to, to Christ. Now, this is the kind of posture of heart that makes us soft-hearted toward the call of Christ as it comes. You need to be saved. Yes, I feel my own weakness. I feel my need to be saved. You need to demonstrate repentance in your life. Love those around you and engage in fair dealing. Yes, I want to do that. I see the love that God has extended to me, and I want to extend that love to others in practical and regular and faithful kind of ways. And so a passage like this bring, brings us important matters for reflection, just as we think about it, especially during this Christmas time. I can ask myself, you can ask yourself, am I ready to celebrate Christmas? Am I prepared to celebrate the coming of Jesus Christ into, into the world? Have I set aside the sin that can tangle me up and twist me away from Christ? Have I put down those things that give me uh, false confidences before God and, and put up roadblocks between me and, and seeing who Jesus really is and my desperate need for Him? Have we done away with those practices that, that can harden our hearts in sin and, and put mountains between us and the forgiveness offered in Jesus that seem to push us back from yielding to Christ and coming to Him with that humble and contrite heart? We see here that in repentance we find life, not because our turning is so good and meritorious, but because Christ's forgiveness is so complete for the one who does the turning and hears His voice and finds His salvation. 
And so what else would we want to do but yield to him with that kind of softness of heart, that kind of contrite heart that recognizes my great need and demonstrates the fact that I recognize my need. I need to turn from the ways I've been living in order to turn back to the way of Christ. And in so doing, I'm going to yield to this one who comes and brings salvation. And so a passage like this is a wonderful Christmas passage. Because as we think about the coming of Jesus, it reminds us that our own hearts need that turning and returning and returning again and again back to what it means to follow Jesus. And there are those areas of life where I can adjust myself and say, I've got, I've got, this has is, this is slid for me. I have not been living in a way that accords with the path that leads straight to repentance before Jesus, but I've been off on these twisty roads and this mountainous terrain that have blocked my view of the significance of Christ as the one I need. And in a context like this, we can be brought back and say, okay, those mountains under the scriptures are made flat for me and those valleys are filled in and I see Jesus for who he is and I need him to save me. And so we can come to this with that kind of penitent heart and we can appreciate the, 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 the preparation that is reflected here in John's ministry as it continues to be applied to us today. And so we have here a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley will be filled and every mountain and hill will be made low. The crooked will become straight, the rough ways smooth, and everyone will see the salvation of God. The Lord is there for us to see as we yield to him, and so we yield to him. And we're reminded to do that from a text like this. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful that we can come under it and you speak to us. We pray that we would have soft hearts, that those areas that would otherwise uh, draw us away from Christ, uh, clog our own uh, apprehensions of Jesus and who he is, we pray, Father, that those would be removed. You'd give us eyes to see them and that we could uh, be brought back uh, to a right understanding and a, and a right yielding and worship and submission to the Lord Jesus and His salvation and in His glory. We ask this in His name. Amen.